Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. Hey, how's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we're going over the Come Follow Me lesson for April 18th through 24th, 2022. This is covering Exodus chapters 18 through 20. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. Hello, Scriptures! Wow, you're going to have some fun stuff to tell us today. And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 12 minutes, 49 seconds. Wow, okay. And so what would that very, very short reading be daily? 1 minute, 49 seconds. Okay. Again, when we've got short readings in a week, think about the kinds of tools and resources you can use to explore it more deeply. And boy, if there's a lesson to take more time on, this is a good one. Absolutely. Here we've got time codes if you want to take it chapter by chapter or buckle up and we'll talk about them all together. But right before we get started, don't forget that if you're watching the show on YouTube, links from the show and a PDF of all our quotes and graphics, it's located in the description below. We hope that it helps you in your study. Also, Please know that there is an audio-only podcast. You can find it by searching for Scripture Gems on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. And if you're already subscribed and listening, you might want to check out the video version of the show on YouTube. Search for the Brother Fulmer channel. Yeah. So let's get started with Exodus chapter 18. In the first 12 verses, after the Israelites established a camp near Mount Sinai, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, brought Moses' wife and his two sons to him. Remember that Moses had received the Melchizedek priesthood from Jethro, who was a righteous priesthood leader and a noble prince and a high priest of Midian. On that, check the footnote in 1b for the Joseph Smith translation. And for more information on Jethro, check your Bible dictionary. Now, the two sons of Moses and Zipporah were named Gershom and Eliezer in verses 3 and 4. Do you think maybe he named his son Eliezer after the servant of Abraham? Oh, that would be cool. I'd like to think that he did. Yeah, yeah, that would be cool. So Moses told Jethro all that the Lord had done in delivering Israel from Pharaoh, and Jethro rejoiced at the goodness of God. Let's pick this up in verse 10. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who hath delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh who hath delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, for in the thing wherein they dealt proudly, he was above them. But the next day, Jethro notices a problem that Moses may have overlooked. Let's pick it up in verse 13. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood by Moses from the morning unto the evening, and when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did to the people, he said, What is this thing that thou doest to the people? Why sittest thou thyself alone? And all the people stand by thee from morning unto even. And Moses said unto his father-in-law, Because the people come unto me to inquire of God. When they have a matter, they come unto me, and I judge between one and another. And I do make them know the statutes of God and his laws, and Moses' father-in-law said unto him, The thing that thou doest is not good. Thou wilt surely wear away both thou and this people that is with thee, for this thing is too heavy for thee. 
thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. Now remember that some have suggested that the size of the camp of Israel may have been more than two million people. Can you imagine the size of the line to see Moses? Right. Now, Jethro doesn't just make the observation. He has some wise advice. Let's pick it up in verse 19. Hearken now unto my voice. I will give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee. Be thou for the people to Godward. Or as it says in the footnote, you represent the people before God, that thou mayest bring the causes unto God. And thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws, and shalt show them the way wherein they must walk, and the work that they must do. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them, to be rulers of thousands, and rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all seasons, and it shall be that every great matter they shall bring unto thee, but every small matter they shall judge. So shall it be easier for thyself, and they shall bear the burden with thee. If thou shalt do this thing, and God command thee so, then thou shalt be able to endure, and all this people shall also go to their place in peace. So Jethro instructs Moses to delegate, choose good men to be placed as leaders over tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. So you have a local leader of tens, five of these local leaders report to a leader of fifty, two of the fifties leaders report to a leader of hundreds, and ten of the hundreds leaders report to the leader of thousands. And presumably, the leader of thousands report to Moses, who in turn reports to God. Does that leadership structure sound familiar? Remember near the end of last year when we talked about Doctrine and Covenants, section 136? Brigham Young clearly saw wisdom in Jethro's advice to Moses and followed it for his camp of Israel at the time. Now, we often think of this story as illustrating the importance of delegation, but here's another thought. Then Elder Dallin H. Oaks taught us about the need for two lines of communication, a priesthood line and a personal line, in his landmark October 2010 General Conference talk. In this story with Jethro, he gave us this interesting perspective. Quote, The people were waiting upon their priesthood leader from morning till night to inquire of God and also to judge between one and another. We often note how Jethro counseled Moses to delegate by appointing judges to handle the personal conflicts. But Jethro also gave Moses counsel that illustrates the importance of the personal line. Thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws, and shalt show them the way wherein they must walk, and the work that they must do. In other words, Israelites who followed Moses should be taught not to bring every question to that priesthood leader. They should understand the commandments and seek inspiration to work out most problems for themselves, end quote. Excellent insight. So what did Moses do with this advice from his father-in-law? Let's take a look in verse 24. So Moses hearkened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Yay! Good job, Moses. Well done. 
And a quick note on verse 27. We learn that Jethro now heads back to Midian. How great it is that God would bless us with good, wise, experienced leaders to help us in our work. And family members. Right. And that brings us to Exodus chapter 19. Now, in the first two verses, Moses brought the children of Israel to Mount Sinai, as the Lord had instructed when he first called Moses. Remember when we talked about that in Exodus 3. For Moses and the children of Israel, Mount Sinai was like a temple. In our day, we go to temples to make covenants that help us become more like our Heavenly Father and prepare us to return to his presence. The Lord brought the children of Israel to Mount Sinai for this same purpose. So to prepare the people to enter into a covenant with the Lord, Moses went up Mount Sinai multiple times. There the Lord revealed to him the terms of the covenant, including commandments, laws, and ordinances. We will strive to track the various trips up and down the mountain as we go along. Right. So let's start with verse 3. And Moses went up unto God. And the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Now, quick aside, did he just call us a peculiar treasure? From the Come, Follow Me manual, we have this great quote from President Russell M. Nelson. This is from April 1995 General Conference, where he explains, quote, In the Old Testament, the Hebrew term from which peculiar was translated is segula, which means valued property or treasure. For us to be identified by servants of the Lord as his peculiar people is a compliment of the highest order, end quote. Oh, that's great. So how do the people respond to this incredible invitation by the Lord? Let's take a look in verse 7. And Moses came, meaning that he came down the mountain, and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. So now he's back up the mountain. Wow. Let's pick it up in verse 9. And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee, and believe thee, forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. Wow. Wow. Notice in verse 10, what did the people need to do to prepare themselves for this incredible experience? What would washing their clothes symbolize to them? As you see in verse 10, sanctify them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. 
From the Institute Manual, we've got a quote from Sister Elaine Dalton. This is from the April 2009 General Conference. When she was the Young Women's General President, she taught that personal virtue prepares us to enter into the Lord's presence. She says this, Your personal virtue will not only enable you to have the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost, but it will also enable you to make the decisions that will help you be worthy to enter the temple and there make and keep sacred covenants and receive the blessings of exaltation. Prepare yourselves spiritually and qualify to enter into our Heavenly Father's presence. Prepare now for the temple, the mountain of the Lord. Never allow the goal of the temple to be out of your sight. Walk into his presence in purity and virtue and receive his blessings, even all that he hath. Nice. So in verses 12 to 15, Moses went down, as it says in verse 14, and obeyed the Lord's commands and worked to sanctify the people. According to the Lord's directions, Moses also set a boundary around the mountain so the people would not ascend it. From the Institute Manual, it says, Just as the Lord sets bounds around Mount Sinai, he also sets bounds around his temples. Only those who live worthy of a temple recommend are qualified to pass those bounds and enjoy the blessings that can be received only in temples. Yeah, that's a great parallel. So let's look at the people's reaction after the third day in verse 16. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. Wow. So let's pick it up in verse 20. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. In verse 21, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go down, charge the people, lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. And skipping to verse 25, So Moses went down unto the people and spake unto them. So that ends chapter 19. So let's go on to Exodus chapter 20. But before we start that chapter, let's take a look in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, Moses recounts important events that happened to the children of Israel over the last 40 years. And in his retelling of this event, he says this from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. And ye came near and stood under the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire unto the midst of heaven, with darkness, clouds, and thick darkness. And the Lord spake unto you out of the midst of the fire. Ye heard the voice of the words, but saw no similitude, only ye heard a voice. And he declared unto you his covenant, which is commanded you to perform, even ten commandments 
and he wrote them upon two tablets of stone. Now that's something that we don't often reflect on, but we have to realize all the Israelites who were standing at the base of Mount Sinai hearing the voice of the Lord. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. And this is a powerful moment, and this is a pivotal moment, certainly for the Israelites. There has been a lot written about the Ten Commandments. You can also refer to them as the Decalogue, if you wish to sound like you know more than you do. That sounds fancy. (laughs) In fact, these ten statements have probably impacted and shaped global human societies more than any other. If you're looking for some further insights on the Ten Commandments, may we recommend a couple of short video series that do a great job. The first is more of an overview of the second half of Exodus from The Bible Project. We'll include a link there. If you're not familiar with them, The Bible Project is a great resource for your study, but understand that it comes from a Protestant perspective. Even still, the way the videos are produced, and especially the way they draw general themes out of books of Scripture, can be really helpful in your study. So don't overlook them as a resource. They do good work. The second video series provides an overview of the Ten Commandments, but also individual videos for each commandment. This is by Dennis Prager, an accomplished Jewish author and commentator. We'll include a link to a YouTube playlist in the description. Also, for a quick summary explanation of each commandment, check out this link from the church, and also one from Gospel Topics, which has a few extra scripture references that might help your study. Yeah, that's great. Good resources. Let's jump in in chapter 20, starting in verses 1 and 2. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, while both Jews and Christians agree that Moses is given Ten Commandments, they don't agree on how those commandments are divided up. It usually boils down to the first two. For Christians, the first commandment is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the second is, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. For the Jews, which may more accurately refer to these as the Ten Statements, the first statement is, I am the Lord thy God. The second statement is a combination of, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. For the remaining eight, both Jews and Christians agree on the numbering. Because of this first commandment or statement, We know that it is God who saved us and gave us these commandments. Why? So we can be free. These commandments will lead to moral self-control and therefore a free society, not a house of bondage. Verse 2 teaches us that God is God, creator of all things, but more importantly to us, that he cares about his creations. Absolutely. How interesting, and maybe we don't understand how rare this is, but the gods of the ancient people didn't care about their moral well-being. Their commandments or instructions were about how they should show obeisance or respect or feed or whatever that they should do for the god, but there's no relationship, there's no investment in their future or care about their moral decisions. Not true with the God of Israel. So let's go on in verse 3 
and this would be what we would consider the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Now, I'm blending the first and second commandments as we see them together, having no gods and not making graven images. Because I think as we talk about and think about these commandments, they're really tightly connected. But why should we have no other god? This commandment is the mother of all the other commandments. First, think what you know about God. He is one God, which means all of us, his children, are from the same father. And therefore, we are all brothers and sisters. And therefore, no person or group is more intrinsically valuable than any other. You know, my stake president is fond of saying that if you think about it, God has no grandchildren. (laughs) Nice. We are all his children. All his children. If then there is one God and he is God, then there is only one moral standard for human beings. His laws apply to everyone. Think about the evil that results when you worship another quote-unquote God with another moral standard. Any virtue is only good when it's connected to God and his moral standard. Elder Boyd K. Packer in a talk called Covenants from the 1990 General Conference in October, said, A virtue, when pressed to the extreme, may turn into a vice. Unreasonable devotion to an ideal without considering the practical application of it ruins the ideal itself. Now, I would propose that this idea of a virtue being pressed to an extreme or unreasonable devotion means that you are creating from that virtue or ideal, a God that competes with that first commandment. Yeah, we talked about that quite a bit two years ago when we studied the Book of Mormon. Right. But if a virtue takes you away from God, it's not a virtue. Right. Those things are only virtuous as they are connected to God. Also, another quote from a great speaker and intellect, Rosaria Butterfield, I'll put a link to this talk in the description. She says, Any identity that seeks to define our personhood and demand our loyalty will compete with our identity as a child of God and as Christ's own. Nice. I like that. There's another example of where we can create another God. Right. Especially one that demands our loyalty and competes with our identity as children of God. And as the next few verses specify, starting in verse 5, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments." From the October 2013 General Conference, then-Elder Dallin H. Oaks clarifies that, quote, the meaning of jealous is revealing. Its Hebrew origin means possessing sensitive and deep feelings. Thus, we offend God when we serve other gods, when we have other first priorities, end quote. Also notice another footnote in verse 5. Does God punish the children because of the iniquity of their fathers? 
Footnote 5F explains, quote, insofar as the children learn to do the sinful things the parents do. But see verse 6 concerning those who repent and serve the Lord. Exactly. Yeah, that's a very important principle. Showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Right. And that is so important. Remember that repentance is possible always. So that's the first two commandments. And now let's move on. Let's take a look in verse 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Now here's a place where checking some alternative translations is helpful. For example, the NIV translates this verse as, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Dennis Prager and others have suggested that the proper translation of the Hebrew would be, You shall not carry the name of the Lord your God in vain. The idea is that you are not to do evil in the name of the Lord. While profanity is something we should all avoid, this commandment means more than that. It's the idea of performing evil works, but doing so supposedly in the name of the Lord. The Lord will not hold him guiltless, meaning I will not let that person go unpunished, says the Lord. That is a very serious statement and not included in any of the other commandments. Those who do evil in God's name bring his name into disrepute. As we'll talk about later in the Bible in 1 Samuel, the high priest Eli's sons used their position in the temple for terrible wickedness and caused the people to commit wickedness or despise the house of the Lord. People don't want to go there to worship because of the actions of these sons. Eli did not do enough to stop his sons, and so the Lord declared that he broke the commandment to have no other gods before me. He tells Eli that he honors his sons above God in 1 Samuel 2.29. Think of other examples like King Noah, whose priests taught the people to do wickedness in the name of the Lord. God destroyed them all. Another example is Alma's son, Corianton, who broke the law of chastity while on a mission with his father. Alma tells him of the seriousness of his sin, that when they saw your conduct, he says, they would not believe in my words. So the seriousness of this can be that our actions put God in disrepute and keep people from coming to the God of Israel. And that's very serious. Mm-hmm. Commandment number four, starting in verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. One of the unique features of the Sabbath day is that it's the Sabbath day for all. Men are not to work, women are not to work, slaves are not to work, animals are not to work. In fact, you'll find later that even the land enjoys a Sabbath. 
This elevates humans to be like God who rested on the Sabbath. All humans, no matter your social status, even animals are given dignity. It strengthens family relationships and friendships. It can give us time to appreciate time together, which helps unite us. Every time you observe the Sabbath, you are affirming that there is a God, a creator, and all that this implies. Right. So, the next commandment in verse 12. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Notice in this commandment, it's the only commandment that gives the reason for the commandment. For example, that thy days may be long upon the land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee. You might think of that as a reward, but it can also be thought of as the reason for doing it. This is why the Lord wants you to honor your father and mother. But does this mean that we have to obey whatever our parents tell us regardless? The Institute Manual gives us this insight. It says, to honor means to bring honor to or to have an attitude of honoring. Obedience means to follow direction or example. Paul said, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, in Ephesians 6, 1. And then immediately thereafter adds, honor thy father and mother. This time, however, he added no qualifying statement, describing it only as the first commandment with promise. To obey one's parents in the Lord means to obey them in righteousness. Anytime a child lives righteously, he brings honor to his parents, whether those parents are themselves righteous or wicked. The opposite is also true. Anytime a child lives wickedly, he brings shame to his parents, whether or not the parents are righteous. So honoring parents may not always imply obeying them. In those relatively few cases where parents may ask for or encourage unrighteous behavior in their children, the individual brings dishonor to his parents if he obeys them. Right. Now, it's often been observed that the next five commandments are specifically about how we should treat each other. Let's take a look at them. Starting with commandment number six in verse 13, thou shalt not kill. Here again, this is an important one to check not only footnotes, but other translations. Most modern translations, including the NIV and New English translation, render this verse, you shall not murder. This is illegal or immoral taking of a human life. This clarifies a lot of common misconceptions. This does not include, for example, manslaughter or the accidental taking of a life, nor does it have any reference to animals or other creatures. Right, and it also isn't talking about war. Correct. Verse 14 gives us our next commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. In a Latter-day Revelation, the Lord condemned not only adultery, but, quote, anything like unto it, in Doctrine and Covenants 59, verse 6. Fornication or other sexual sins are violations of the seventh commandment. The Institute Manual includes several quotes from a book called The Ten Commandments Today. In that book, it has various general authorities who speak on various commandments. This one is from Mark E. Peterson. He says this, quote, Man must reproduce himself. Man was not of the vegetable kingdom to follow the rules of that form of life. 
neither was he an animal to be led by mere instincts. As a child of God, man was given powers not granted to any other form of life. He was of the divine race, and therefore could have many of the privileges and powers related to divinity. The power of reproduction must be given to man, as it had been given to lower forms of life, to perpetuate his species. But whereas the Lord had set up safeguards for this power among the lower forms, barriers which the animals had no tendency to break down because of the manner in which they were made, man was in a different situation. With his right of choice, with his impulses, some for good and some for evil, even Satan had rebelled in the pre-existence, he could now use these divinely given powers for either good or bad purposes. It was not a matter of instinct with him. It was a matter of choice. He possessed the right of choice before he came into the world. It was not taken from him when he became mortal. The animals would not corrupt their reproductive powers. Instinct took care of that. But what would mortal man do? This question came to the very heart of the purpose for which man was sent here, to try him and prove whether he was worthy to come back into God's presence. With his right of choice, he would be at liberty to select his own course. He could do that which would be ennobling, or he could do that which would debase. Laws were the answer. How else could God deal with an intelligent person who had the right of choice and who was to be tested to see which he would choose? So God called before him the first man and the first woman. As male and female, they were to reproduce their species, but they were to do so under divinely prescribed conditions. The covenant of marriage, this sacred thing which was to go on eternally, was the heavenly institution which God provided under which his mortal children on earth were to reproduce themselves. There should be no human sex relationship outside of marriage. Children born to man and woman under divinely appointed marriage were to remain as their children forever. Families would continue as a unit even into eternity. The ties of home established in earth life would last forever. It was part of the system of heaven transferred to earth. It must be kept sacred. Close quote. Nice. I like that. And I wanted to remind us of a quote that we referenced before from the April 2015 General Conference. Elder D. Todd Christofferson reminds us, quote, God joined Adam and Eve as husband and wife. Neither we nor any other mortal can alter this divine order of matrimony. It is not a human invention, end quote. Right. Well, let's go on to commandment number eight, going to verse 15. Thou shalt not steal. From the Institute Manual, we have this quote from President Spencer W. Kimball. This comes from October 1976 General Conference. He says, quote, In public office and private lives, the word of the Lord thunders, Thou shalt not steal, nor do anything like unto it. We find ourselves rationalizing in all forms of dishonesty, including shoplifting, which is a mean, low act indulged in by millions who claim to be honorable, decent people. Dishonesty comes in many other forms, in hijacking, in playing upon private love and emotions for filthy lucre, 
in robbing money tills or stealing commodities of employers, in falsifying accounts, in taking advantage of other tax-paying people by misuse of food stamps and false claims, in taking unreal exemptions, in government or private loans without intent to repay, in unjust, improper bankruptcies to avoid repayment of loans, in robbing on the street or in the home money and other precious possessions, in stealing time, giving less than a full day of honest labor for a full day's compensation, in riding without paying the fare, and in all forms of dishonesty in all places and in all conditions. To all thieveries and dishonest acts, the Lord says, Thou shalt not steal. Four short common words he used. Perhaps he wearied of the long list he could have made of ways to steal, misrepresent, and take advantage, and he covered all methods of taking that which does not properly belong to one by saying, Thou shalt not steal. End quote. You know what I love about these prophetic commentaries and insights is that we may zip through these commandments and go, thou shalt not kill. I haven't killed anybody. Thou shalt not steal. I haven't stolen anything. Okay, maybe take a little time and think about (laughs) ways in which these manifest because the Ten Commandments are universal and they apply to us today. Now, maybe we haven't stolen anything, but I think what President Kimball is saying here is maybe we should take a closer look. There are many and diverse ways of stealing something. Yep. So let's move on to the next commandment in verse 16. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. The Institute Manual gives us another chapter from the book, The Ten Commandments Today. This is from Adam S. Benyon. He says this, Murder, adultery, and stealing, dealing respectively with life, virtue, and property, are generally considered more serious offenses before the law than the bearing of false witness. And yet, what the latter may lack in severity, it more than makes up for in prevalence. As a matter of fact, most of the readers of these lessons will likely shun, as they would a plague, the first three of these major social offenses. But consciously or unconsciously, we may all at times be tempted into the carelessness of rumor and other forms of bearing false witness. To bear false witness is to testify to or to pass along reports, insinuations, speculations, or rumors as if they were true to the hurt of a fellow human being. Sometimes the practice stems from a lack of correct information, sometimes from lack of understanding, sometimes from misunderstandings, sometimes from a vicious disposition to distort and misrepresent. Whereas murder involves the taking of human life, bearing false witness centers in the destruction of character or its defamation. It reaches to the ruin of reputation. I like that. Well, then let's go on. Commandment number 10 in verse 17 Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Interestingly, this is the only commandment that directly deals with our thoughts, not our outward behaviors. The Hebrew word translated as covet means 
to want to the point of seeking to take away and own something that belongs to another person. From the Institute Manual, we have this insight, again from the Ten Commandments today. This is from Richard L. Evans. He says, quote, This is the last of the Ten Commandments, and if it were not so involved with all the others, some might suppose it to be one of the least. But all the commandments are so intertwined that none can be broken without weakening all the others. To illustrate, and to remind ourselves of the other nine, he who covets the mere material things of life may have other gods before him and may bow down before them in thought and in spirit, if not in physical fact. He who covets may become coarse and careless in other things also, such as taking the name of the Lord God in vain. He who covets may desecrate the Sabbath day to get gain. He who covets may fail to sustain his father and his mother in their need. Some who have coveted have killed to get gain. Many who have coveted a neighbor's wife have committed the grievous sin of adultery. He who covets is more likely to steal or to swindle or embezzle or engage in sharp practices. He who covets may bear false witness to get gain. And so again, the Tenth Commandment is inseparably integrated with all the others, and coveting could lead to infraction of all the others. For there is a wholeness in life in which each part complements the other, and there is a wholeness and harmony in the Word of God, and it all comes from the same source. And whenever we ignore any divine counsel or commandment, we can be sure that we weaken ourselves and increase our susceptibility to other sins. The commandment against covetousness does not mean that we should not have a wholesome discontent or a wholesome desire to improve ourselves or our situation. It does not mean that we should not have an honest ambition to have more of the better things of life. It does not mean that we may not admire what our neighbor has and seek by our own industry to earn things of like worth. The earth holds plenty for all and the urge to acquire for ourselves such good things as other men have is a productive quality of character, provided that we acquire them by honest effort, by lawful means, and by keeping life well-balanced. The danger comes when mere things begin to matter too much. End quote. So there you have it, the Ten Commandments. These are so special and so important. In the Gospel Topics section under Ten Commandments, we mentioned that resource earlier. It says this, Although most of the Ten Commandments list things we should not do, they also represent things we should do. The Savior summarized the Ten Commandments in two principles, love for the Lord and love for our fellow men. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That's from Matthew 22, 37-39. Now, perhaps, as we've explored these commandments, you've said to yourself, you know, I'd really like to memorize these. Well, certainly you can use whatever memorization tools you'd like to. It would be great to have these in our mind to be able to file them away to use at any time to teach or to help support our own good choices. 
A couple episodes ago, we mentioned the LDS Scripture Rock songs. They have one for the Ten Commandments, verses 3 through 17. You might have a lot of fun memorizing them this way, you or your family. I'll put a link to that song in the description, and you can check it out if you'd like. So, how were these teachings received? In verses 8 through 26, when the Israelites saw the thunderings and the lightnings upon Mount Sinai and heard the Lord's voice declare the Ten Commandments, they were afraid. Moses told them to fear not, in verse 20. Moses' words about God's fear being before their faces were meant to inspire their reverence and awe toward God and to motivate them to resist sin. Take a look at the footnote E in verse 20. From Moses' response, we learn that reverence for God helps us to resist sin. The Lord then gave instructions on how the Israelites were to worship him. Mm-hmm. Now notice in verse 23, Ye shall not make with me gods of silver, neither shall ye make unto you gods of gold. An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings, and thy peace offerings, thy sheep, and thine oxen. In all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee, and I will bless thee. And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone. For if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. Now there's a specific prohibition against making gods of silver or gold. This will be important in our next lesson. (laughs) Right. But also... Notice that an altar is to be made, and specifically, it is not to include hewn stone or carved stone. To me, this would be a strong reminder that the altar is not made by man, but of God, and therefore would be suitable for God's purposes. We're going to learn a lot as we go forward about the commandments, tools, rituals, ordinances that God is giving in order to help bring people to him to understand who he is and how he feels about his children and how he wants his children to treat one another. Ultimately, all of this is to unify us with God and to create what we would call a Zion society, one heart, one mind, dwelling in righteousness before the Lord. This has been a powerful lesson, and I hope you take the time to read over the Ten Commandments and maybe memorize them. Apply them in your life, certainly. These teachings have formed global societies for thousands of years. A great exercise that you might consider doing as you read those commandments is to think about examples in the scriptures where when people have lived them, they've been blessed, and the problems that have come when those commandments have been broken. I shared some stories about Eli and his sons, Corianton, King Noah, What scripture stories can you think of where blessings come from keeping these commandments and the problems that arise when these commandments are not kept? And then if you really want to have fun with the Ten Commandments, as you listen to the news or talk about experiences and stories that are happening in the world today, use the Ten Commandments to think about how might tragedy have been avoided if the commandments were kept, or what blessings or safety came to people by keeping these commandments. They are universal and true. Keep reading your scriptures, and we'll look forward to talking to you more about Moses and the children of Israel in our next lesson. We'll see you then. 
This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans. 